Good morning. I have a disclaimer. And because you're in the second service, I can actually switch it up a little bit from what I stated in the first service. I stated in the first service, because we are a little bit under a little bit more time constraints, that this passage that we're in today is just so unbelievably rich and deep that I asked that I might be allowed to preach for 60 minutes, and then I backed it down to, well, maybe 50, but we're second service, so I'm going to say maybe 70s, back down to 60. (laughs) And you know what? I didn't see a single person sleeping in the first service as I was preaching either. So I'm watching you. Last week, we discussed what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We examined, if you recall, several characteristics of that pursuit, Um, a courageous heart of obedience, a courageous pursuit of unity, a courageous defense of the gospel, and then a courageous, I had trouble with that word last week too, acceptance of suffering. By now, you're more than likely familiar with the two foundations that we communicated about this letter as a whole, the gospel of Christ and the fellowship of Christ. Regarding the fellowship of Christ, we've discussed multiple times this concept in the Greek language of the plural you and how Paul wrote this letter to the church as a whole, but he continues to emphasize the corporate aspect of his letter. What is it about unity? Why is it important for the body of Christ? Well, for an example, we might look to Christ and the picture that was shown as an illustration of his relationship with the church in the book of Ephesians. In the same way that husbands and wives are joined together in one flesh, Ephesians utilizes this covenant as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Jesus stated in Matthew 19 that what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why is unity such a vital element for marriage? Or for, the, or for Christ and his bride? Well, for one reason, God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are perfectly united, are a perfect example of unity within the triune Godhead. Fully united in one being, while at the same time, three separate persons. What is it that demonstrates how the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, set aside his divine attributes, albeit never divesting himself of his deity when he came here to live a perfect and sinless life? In many respects, it's difficult for us to apprehend in our finite limited human minds however if we attempted to do so simply stated the attitude of biblical humility answers the question christ demonstrated this communicable attribute of god with perfection now if you haven't heard of this term communicable it's often referred to versus incommunicable pertains to attributes that if they are communicable, 
are also attained by us as human beings. Incommunicable mean attributes that only belong to God. And because this attribute of humility is communicable, he calls us to practice and do the same. J.C. Ryle stated, the surest mark of true conversion is humility. John Newton stated, I am persuaded that love and humility are the highest attainments in the school of Christ and the brightest evidences that he is indeed our master. Humility in and of itself is not a fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. But we know it's truly a fruit of a life that desires to follow Christ. Why is that? 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 reads, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. There are many scriptures that speak to this reality that we are called to be like him. Throughout this letter, we will see several examples of humility in Paul himself and Epaphroditus and Timothy. However, This passage that we come to today, there is no greater example of humility in the scriptures, in my opinion. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, stands alone as one of the pinnacle sections of scripture concerning the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and this ultimate example of humility in the Lord himself. In many respects, we all come to this passage humbled by its theological immensity and yet profound practical implications. In preaching a passage such as this, it would be a neglect of the highest degree for me to pass over one of the biggest theological components in all of Scripture. That being said, my main focus will be for us to explore the concept of humility and how that contributes to unity. By the grace of God, we will attempt to answer the question, what is humility and what is its benefit? Four explanations from Philippians 2, 1 through 11 will lead the way for us. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Our first explanation found in verses 1 through 2 is humility, the foundation of unity. Paul begins this section with a connection to the previous paragraph. That word, therefore, is the marker for us. You will recall from last week that we saw in the final verse that a life worthy of the gospel is inevitably called to suffer. In light of that, humility connects with perfect harmony here in these verses 1 through 2. If one is to persevere and to be found worthy, then a humble, submissive spirit will be better prepared to look to Christ as the source of strength in those sufferings in opposition rather than oneself. In order to showcase this, Paul utilizes four conditional if clauses now i'm gonna get a little technical here for you but it's important for us to understand the distinction it's simple when we understand it but he utilizes what is called a first class condition in the greek language now the reason why that is important is because a first class condition condition in this type of context communicates not something as if we would understand if like hopeful or wishing but it actually communicates a certain component of what he's trying to convey. So it's important that we understand this is a certainty. Don't think through our 21st century lens when you hear the word if, that this is a hope, but it is a certain reality. That being understood, the first two certainties are the encouragement in Christ and the consolation of love. As for encouragement, this is the same word that is used to identify the Holy Spirit as the comforter. As for consolation, the word carries a very similar sense, to console or to encourage. Considering both certainties, the church at Philippi would have understood that through disappointment and suffering, there is certain comfort found in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.5 speaks to this as well. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort in abundant through Christ. Human nature left to itself is always at war against traits such as humility and unity. Nevertheless, Paul is committed to challenge and empower these believers by reminding them of their source of strength. The next conditional clause of certainty reads, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. Throughout the letter, we have seen the repeated emphasis of the fellowship of Christ. It is the fellowship of the Spirit that the church as a whole enjoys as they are linked together in participation. Through the intimate, close relationship with the Spirit 
a submissive pursuit of unity is attainable even in the midst of suffering and opposition. Paul then concludes his conditional certainties with that of the Lord's affection and compassion for his people. This, of course, is a deep compassion and mercy that can only come from Christ for his people. It is because of this type of certainty that one can look to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, and actually be able to follow it. When Paul here says, So, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This foundation of humility is certainly grounded in unity. And in verse 2, he makes that connection and commands them to make my joy complete in the pursuit of this unity. He speaks of, you see it, a same mind, a same love, united in one spirit, intent on one purpose. As we alluded to, chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, is, a clear, is clear in its connection to this section whether it's the comfort and encouragement with suffering, or here we see the one spirit and one mind connection. Find it fascinating how Paul often links terms of similarity in order to communicate emphasis, whether it's encouragement and consolation, or here, same mind and intent on one purpose. The emphasis is one's attitude or manner of thinking. That being said, allow me to offer a thought for application when it comes to positioning our minds with intentionality in pursuit of humility, the foundation for unity. One aspect of that thinking is to fortify yourself against wrong thinking, a sort of negative perspective, if you will. 2 Corinthians 10.5 speaks to this. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. However, I believe wholeheartedly there's a far more important, powerful approach when it comes to thinking by God's grace from a positive perspective. Paul demonstrates this at the end of this book. Chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What can we say then? Think specifically intentionally and with a positive direction concerning unity concerning humility what do we speak about in paul's prayer for the church in the beginning of this study we discuss this prayer of substance that he had not that he would pray in general terms that he that he's prayed specifically that they would grow in love and in discernment and in knowledge As we think about a mindset that is intent on one purpose, focused upon a desire to be humble servants of God, 
desiring unity within the body of Christ. Can we be specific in that thinking? Can we be positive, not just negative? What is it that contributes to this type of effort? It's not easy, that's for sure. We all know that. We wrestle with the flesh. However, we discussed in the beginning of this series, Paul's prayer of emotion as well as substance. He clearly demonstrated his love for the church. Unity and a spirit of humility must involve deep affection for one another. Right thinking is vital. But so is a desire to be maintaining the same love united in one spirit as the verse states. The idea is one of a harmonious, sincere appreciation to hold each other in high regard. Is that our desire? So, if I were to summarize this first explanation, I would say because of Christ and His work, humbly, Submit your mind with intentional direction and with affection for others in the pursuit of unity. Our second explanation is the definition of humility. An old pastoral mentor of mine used to say, John, make sure that you define your terms. In verses 3 and 4, we see a perfect illustration, explanation of what humility is, what it means from a biblical perspective. Look with me in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Right from the onset, we see this contrast with selfishness. Paul has already used the same word earlier in the letter. In chapter 1, verse 17. Many of you might recall that he was speaking to some that were within this church that desired to preach Christ with selfish ambition. You might recall how that was also related and connected to an attitude of jealousy or rivalry. There was a desire from some of them that they might have the same type of influence that Paul was having. Here we see Paul charging them to do nothing from selfishness or from jealousy. Or furthermore, empty conceit. The word translated empty conceit carries the idea of an illusion or empty pride. Now, why would Paul be concerned with this attitude of an empty or excessive pride? Better yet, why should we be concerned with that? In a world centered upon the ambitions of men, what is often the result of such pursuit but a feeling of self-accomplishment in pride, in boastfulness. Are we at times tempted to relish in our accomplishments? 
as if they were created by our excessive ambition? Of course we are. However, we would be wise to remember the words of James when he stated, every good thing given in every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It is an illusion or empty conceit to operate in life as if it is all about us, our wants, our desires, and what we are able to achieve. God's word says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, jealousy, rivalry. Now, just as we discuss the potential negative and positive aspect of right thinking, Paul actually applies that here. The negative charge is, of course, to do nothing. But from a positive perspective, what does he say? But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Powerful. I'm often challenged even in myself, in my walk, with the golden rule. We often think that if we think from a boundary standpoint, that we do not do this, that we are honoring God. And to some extent, extent, of course we are. But God calls for us to do so much more because of the example that he sets. To step forward into the midst of whatever suffering and opposition we may have or whatever context we are in. And to, with a humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves. It's interesting how Paul uses the same word for mind here. As he uses for it the intent on one purpose from verse 2. This definition of humility, we cannot escape the reality that humility centers upon a specific mindset. Albeit by the grace of God. We could even repeat the words of Philippians chapter 4 again that I communicated earlier. If anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. Humility is certainly honorable, right, and true. Furthermore, it regards one another as more important than yourselves. Emphasis placed on more important. Apart from our relationship with Christ, There is no greater, more intimate relationship than a marriage between a man and a woman. Here on this earth, there's no person person more important to me than my wife. It is my desire that by the grace of God, I would live a life that counts her more important than myself. I fall short, but the charge is still there. That I would consider her as exceptional value in my life, cherishing and nourishing her as Christ did the church. 
These words, more important, communicate this very truth. Exceptional value. Who is that person in your life? Continue to practice humility with them in that type of manner. However, I have a challenge for you. This letter was written to the church as a whole. Remember from last week, if you are a citizen of heaven, if you will, you are called to think corporately. Can we, by God's grace, be challenged to think collectively when seeking to count others as more important than ourselves? In some respects, that is easy to do within the context of our own families. But what about us here, brothers and sisters in Christ, within this local church? Can we be challenged by God's grace to count others as more significant than ourselves? It's not an unrealistic expectation. We all know we cannot do it to perfection. But it's about a lifestyle a commitment to intentionally apply this type of mindset intent on one purpose as we seek to serve and love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 4, he further defines the term by saying, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Our question once again was, what is humility? And what is its benefit? The benefit's coming. But I have an answer of application for you when it comes to what is humility. This is taken from the commentator Thomas Constable. If humility is the foundation for unity, then will we be found as servants, not just helpers? Listen to the distinction between the two. A helper helps others when it is convenient. A servant serves others when it is inconvenient. A helper helps people that he or she likes. A servant serves even people that he or she dislikes. A helper helps when he or she enjoys the work. A servant serves even when he or she dislikes the work. A helper helps with a view to obtaining personal satisfaction. A servant serves even when he or she receives no personal satisfaction. A helper helps with an attitude of assisting another. A servant serves with an attitude of enabling one another. How will you pursue humility as a servant, not just a helper, here at MCC. It won't be easy, but our third explanation serves as a wonderful, ultimate picture of that illustration. That is the example of humility. Look with me at verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 5 begins, you've heard me reference this at times, with another present tense command. What does that communicate? In regards to this word, have this attitude. It's an ongoing charge. And the word has at least the form of three previous elements that we've seen in the text. Humility of mind, intent on one purpose, and a same mind. Which, of course, the verse states was also in Christ Jesus. He is the perfect example of humility and that he was first intent on one purpose. Now, we could go to many passages of Scripture that speak to the significance of the purpose of Christ's life. I landed on Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28. It is not this way among you, but whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He was not just a helper, but the suffering servant was the perfect example of a humility of mind. The bar is indeed perfection. Nevertheless, the command is to have this attitude. I'm often encouraged by the words of the early church father when it comes to this concept of feeling the weight of not being able to attain what we've been called to attain. But Augustine said, command what you will and give what you command. The Apostle John tells us the children of God practice righteousness. That is the key. Are we practicing righteousness? We will fall short. But is our priority one? That is focused upon a humility of mind. If the church was tempted to despair in such a lofty example, Paul has already reminded them of the certain encouragement and comfort that they have in Christ. Why is Christ the ultimate encouragement and comfort for mankind? The answer lies within that great Theological truth that I teased in our introduction. I mentioned that it would be of the greatest neglect if I did not address this topic. Theologians often refer to it as a technical term here, but you're going to walk away understanding a fancy technical term. It's pretty simple in its definition, but it is called the hypostatic union. And simply stated, that just means that God is 100% fully, Christ was 100% fully God and 100%
fully man. Why is that such a great encouragement? Not only is it theological, but it is also, I believe, one of our greatest encouragements, one of our greatest hopes. Why is that? We do not serve a man who is not God when he was here on earth, nor do we serve a God who did not face trials and temptations such as we within mankind. Verse 6 begins to address this monumental truth with the phrase, although he existed in the form of God. Two major considerations here concerning the verb existed and the phrase form of God. Paul is communicating a sense that Christ has always continually existed. We see this even in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 when Christ prayed, and now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. That's a canon against any false religion that would deny the deity of Christ. Furthermore, when it comes to this phrase, a form of God, the sense here is one of an external form that reflects the internal nature. In Hebrews 1.3 we read, as he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. If that is not enough to confirm this divine truth, he goes on to say Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Two major observations here as well. The Greek word for equality conveys things that are equal in every sense of the matter. John 10.30 Jesus spoke, I and the Father are one. Moreover, the phrase, a thing to be grasped, communicates a desire to clutch with force something that is already possessed. And yet Christ, with all his preeminence, did not regard these things in any way. He did not exploit his authority. What a monumental truth that serves to encourage us, as Paul has already alluded to in the beginning of the passage. Not only has Christ encouraged us, but he has also given us the fellowship of the Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. The comforter. We read of that comfort in Christ, even in the beginning of the passage. If that was not enough, Christ provides the ultimate example of humility and taking on flesh in the form of mankind. Verse 7 begins with, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. This term, emptied himself, unfortunately, for years, 
has led to, in many liberal circles, an argument that Christ completely emptied himself of his deity when he came in human flesh. The NASB, which I preach out of, as you know, and several other translations, utilize this word, emptied himself, and it is the correct translation because that is the literal translation of the Greek word. However, within the context of this passage, and taking into consideration what we see within that context, humility throughout, there is more than enough information to support what other translations indicate, such as the NIV, which states, he made himself as nothing. Emptied himself is the proper literal translation, but we cannot look at this through the lens of our 21st century eyes. What did the author intend to communicate to the original audience within the flow of context? And that is that Christ, in the ultimate example of humility, made himself as nothing. The late 20th century commentator and theologian John Walverd had this to say about this phrase, emptied himself. It is obvious that he gave up the outer manifestation of deity, but the act of assuming humanity in the form of a servant was superimposed upon his deity without taking away his divine attributes. Do you hear that? Without taking away his divine attributes. He was like a king who temporarily puts on the garments of a peasant while at the same time remaining king, even though it was not outwardly apparent. The picture of a peasant while still a king perfectly fits what we read as the verse continues, taking the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. Paul again uses this word form to convey an external form that reflects an internal nature. Although he has existed continually before time began in the form of God, he took on the form of man being made in his likeness. Why can we look to Christ as our example in perfect humility, in fine strength. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and you'll know. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Because of his perfect example and victory over the curse of sin, we can overcome, we can practice humility. As we close out our third explanation and the example of humility, look with me again at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Right away, we see the picture again of Christ's humanity. However, do not miss a crucial element of humility within this verse. Christ made an active choice to humble himself and to do it with the worst of consequences. In John 10, 18, Christ made clear that no man had authority to take his life, yet he laid it down himself. Moreover, we know that whether from Deuteronomy chapter 21 or even the Roman cultural context, that death on a tree, or in this manner, on the cross, was for the worst of individuals. Those that were to be cursed. And Christ chose that as the ultimate example of humility. (laughs) What are we to say? How often do we desire our interests above those of others? When it comes to body life here at MCC, is is it our desire to be servants following our Lord's example, dying to self, not just helpers. God's Word is calling us to have this attitude in ourselves. Christ, the God-man, has broken the curse of sin, becoming obedient to the point of death, not just for your salvation, but that you might be equipped and complete for every good work to practice humility, to regard others with exceptional value as more important than yourself. Well, we still haven't gotten to the benefit. Let's look at our fourth and final explanation for an answer to that question the result of humility. Verse 9 reads, For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What is that reason? Of course, it is a part of the sovereign plan of God that Christ be exalted. But it was also in part due to his humility exhibited through his actions. The benefit of humility is that God will exalt his humble servant. As for our Lord, the word highly exalted here. If I were to use an illustration for some of you that perhaps are in college now or going there in the future or some of us that were there many years ago. Christ was highly exalted and for him acquired the summa of all summa cum laudes, if you will. Summa cum laude referring to graduating, if you will, with the highest of all honors. Exceptional honor. Although for Christ, 
an honor that only he will receive. The name which is above every name. However, what about us? Will God benefit you in some way as you practice by God's grace humility? Now, of course, our desire is not to be solely focused on the benefit that comes with serving Christ. Although when our hearts and minds are directed towards humility, most certainly benefits are coming. James 4, 6 reads, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Or 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Christ is the only one who will ever be given exceptional honor with a name that is above all names. And that is a good thing because he is the one that has overcome our sin of pride and created a path for humility. However, know that in your humility, God will exalt you as a servant of the King. Why is that? Because He knows that you will echo words such as Psalm 145.1. I extol you, my God. O King, and I will bless your name forever. God chooses to exalt his humble servant because if you are a humble servant for Christ, you know that it is nothing about you and your desire is to extol him. To close out this incredible section, we see the greatest of all benefits in the humility of Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this incarnate Christ, as believers, we experience the one who is master and Lord. The king in which all will eventually publicly confess and bow before. If you are a believer here today, you understand that benefit. Before time began, God in His divine, unconditional love thought of you rather than Himself as He went to the cross to pay the price for your sins and mine. Many of you have often probably quoted Galatians 2.20. As you think of the context of the suffering servant, 
and the humility, the ultimate example that we see and display in this passage. As I read these words, let them sink in personally for you. This is the greatest benefit of humility. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That is the greatest benefit of Christ's act of humility. And dare I say, if there is anyone here who does not understand that benefit, the fact that He is Lord, it can be a benefit to you as well. That is, if you will receive and trust in Christ alone, receive His gifts of repentance and faith, In humility, acknowledge your sinful pride and trust Him today as Lord and Savior. Eventually, every knee will bow. Some in submission to this great benefit. Others in eternal judgment. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for sending your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you paid the price and offered the greatest of all benefits in your act of humility. You are Lord. You are our Savior. Holy Spirit, you are a comforter to us. You equip us. You bring your word in remembrance to us. Help us to count others as more important than ourselves. To think of that truth even within the context of our local church here today. In the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.